So let me ask you a question. How old are you? Wait a minute. I'm, I'm a southern gentleman, so I'm really just asking that to the guys. Because <laughs> I know better than to ask the women, how old are you? So you know, most of you will answer that question with a number of years. And that's a very biological, realistic answer. If you ask how old, ask me how old my granddaughter is, I'd say she's 38 days or so. Sorry. What if the question was, how grown up are you? Again, you'd likely come back with an answer like adult or parent, some of you, or something that spoke to your level of maturity, status in the community, what you've accomplished. If I said how grown up you are, you might say, I have this many kids or grandkids, or I've done this or I've done that. That would be a maturing answer. But do you ever think of answering that question based on your Christian maturity? You know, I'm not asking how Christian are you. For me, I grew up in the South. Christianity is a lot like pregnancy. You either are or you are not. So there is no scale for you to load your good deeds on in order to make it into the Christian bucket. Fundamentally, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are a Christian. That's the way I believe. So let's talk about the development of Christians. Uh, so, and to do that, I'm going to talk a little bit about the development in general. Uh, and, and this kind of came to me because uh, I'm married to a psychologist. And yes, I have ample opportunity to express my emotions. Any of you guys want to know what it's like to be married to a psychologist? Wonderful woman. It's a good thing. She's got camera over there and a grandbaby, so she's got to be like the happiest person in the room right now. Um, I also have, I, personally, I do have an undergraduate degree in psychology, which is uh, how I met my wife in school. And one of the first classes I took as a psych major was on development. And I kind of remember the professor, it was like this teacher's aide. You know how when you go to college and you get the teacher's aide flunkies that teach the intro classes, that's what I was doing. And, uh, and, and she was good, but she taught us about a guy named Piaget. Anybody ever heard of Piaget? A couple of people, there you go. All right, so those of you that know more about this than me, the rocks are for walking on, not throwing, just to let you know right up front. Oh, and I forgot to start with a joke, and, and Bud came up to me earlier and said, do you need a, a preacher joke to start the sermon? And I was thinking, well, that's just it. You need a, sermons have to start with a joke, right? Not true. Okay, so for those of you who don't know Piaget, he was a Swiss clinical psychologist who lived from the late 1800s until 1980. In other words, this guy's relatively contemporary for most of us here. He spent time observing his children and wrote up a theory of development which helped provide a framework and consequently add, aided in education and how we think about growing up. In other words, if you struggle with a concept of stages of development, just try teaching your two-year-old algebra. You won't get very far, right? So as we grow up from kids, while we're growing up, we don't think about it, but as parents, we see our kids grow up, we think about, oh, they can do this now, right? Like, you know, yesterday, my granddaughter, who's five weeks old, was, like, trying to stand on her legs. And we're like, oh, that's, an, that's more development, right? You think about that. And the mind develops, too. So PJ may not have had everything right about development, but there, and I'm sure there are more current theories. And just so you know, if you wanted a more exhaustive understanding of development, my wife's right over there. She can help you. I'm just going to give you the Kevin Causey, I was raised in the South and went to school and have an undergraduate degree in psychology view on development, Okay. It's not too heady. There's no test. Okay. So there are four stages in Piaget's theory. The sensory motor. You guys, you guys woke up this morning thinking, I can't wait to hear a sermon on psychology, right? 
There are four stages of PJ's theory, sensory motor, pre-operational, concrete operational, and formal operational. And I'm going to walk you through those. Don't worry, no test. And if you think, wow, this guy went to college 30 years ago and remembers this stuff, that's not true. But I know how to Google with the best of them. So I went back and it like came back. So let me, let me review these quickly. So sensory motor is that first couple of years of life. So think of it as between the time you're born to when you have a language. All right, so, you know, zero to maybe two. So before babies talk, it's all about reflexes and how things feel and touch, sounds, how things taste, moving objects across the floor when they start crawling. You know, we hang things over the crib, like Kate right now is fascinated with ceiling fans. I'm sure she'll grow out of that at some point, but right now ceiling fan is like the best toy ever. And we play games like patty cake, right? Everybody know patty cake? Patty cake, patty cake, baker's man. It's, it's all about moving the arms. And then my favorite, which is that, I don't know, I'm, you guys are going to say I'm silly, but you remember that game where you do like peepa? Peepa, how would you call that? Peekaboo? I call it peepa, I don't know. Because I guess in the South we say peepa. Peepa, peepa. Well, you know, when, when your hands are over your face, the reason the baby is so excited to see you is because when your hands are over your face, you cease to exist at that moment. So you're like disappearing and reappearing and disappearing and reappearing. It's like your magic at that moment. So that's one of the great things about, you know, playing with a three-month-old or a six-month-old or whatever. Um, now, pre-operational is the next few years, and it's up until about school age. So now we're talking about, you know, the, the terrible twos to first grader. And by pre-operational, we mean that kids can perform logical operations on things. They don't think through stuff, but... Uh, they can they, they perform logical operations things. So let me give you an example. As a parent, you're really, really surprised. I mean, you're like astounded when your four-year-old picks up a rock and throws it through the glass and the glass breaks, right? You're shocked. Oh, the kids are coming after me already. But let me, let me clue you in on something. Your four-year-old was shocked too. They had no idea that the rock was going to cause the glass to break. They can't think about that, right? They're four. Um, so there, you know, there's a little bit of parenting advice in there. You know, I'm, I'm going to go off script here for just a second. I'm, I remember and living in North Carolina and my son might remember the story too, but we were at a table eating dinner and I was all like wound up about something. I don't know what it was. And I was flailing my arms and I knocked over a whole pitcher of sweet tea at the time. You remember that? He thought it was funny. And, you know, in reality, I thought it was funny, too, because, you know, you just, funny things happen, and it's okay. I can't remember how old he was. He was probably uh, first grade, five, six, seven, something like that. So, uh, you know, it's okay when those surprises happen because, you know, kids don't always think of, hear this, you know, they don't, they don't grow up with watching Agatha Christie murder mysteries on TV. They don't think, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and then that'll happen. There are... Uh, pre-operational. So it's really no need to punish the four-year-olds for things that they can't predict would happen. You could teach a kid not to throw things, but they can't predict the outcome between throwing a toy in a box and throwing a stone into a glass. That's why we like to keep a close watch on our four-year-olds. And if there are any four-year-olds out there, don't send me hate mail, okay? Now, concrete operational is the third stage. So what do we do? We had sensory motor, pre-operational, Concrete operational, I'm reviewing, see, hopefully you remember this. It's the stage from about 7 to about 12, 7 years old to about 12 years old. And that's where we see logic emerge. 
like a fourth grader instead of a four-year-old that throws a rock and breaks a window knew the window would break, right? Fourth grader knows they're breaking the window. Four-year-old just is like, oh, the window broke. That's a surprise. So there's some combination of logic and experience. If you show a child a comic, right, a comic strip in which a girl named Jane puts a doll under a box, let's say this box right here, and leaves the room, and then another girl comes up, let's say Melissa, and moves the doll to somewhere else, and then Jane comes back, the concrete operational child will tell you that Jane thinks the doll is still in the box. In other words, they can see the world from someone else's perspective. So we're talking about 7 to 12-year-olds, right? But it's still concrete. It's not abstract. And the abstract is the last stage. It's the formal operational stage. It's from about 12 years old to about 20 and some of us are still stuck in that stage, right? It's we develop the ability to relate symbols and are capable of hypothetically and deductive, hypothetical and deductive reasoning. We can ponder questions, right? Like what will happen if I drive my car too fast and run off the road? We don't have to experience that. We, can, we don't have to have those experiences to tell us what will happen. We can just say, this is what I think is going to happen abstractly. So abstract thought allows us to do things like algebra, where symbols hold value, right? Some of you can do algebra well. Um, it also lets us to uh, hypothesize and, and sweat over situations like, I'm afraid to ask her to the dance because she might turn me down. Or I walked into the room and the laughter stopped, so they must be laughing at a story about me. And I'm just telling you stuff about how I think, right? And, and just so you know... Um, I figured out that when people stop laughing when I walk in the room, it's, it's never about me because I'm just not that important, right? So those of you that think everything's about you, it's not. Um, so that's the formal operational stage, and that's the fourth stage of Piaget. So everybody got it? And he's like, go ahead, let's talk about Christianity. What about Christian development? How do Christians develop? Now, we can all think about a conversion moment, right? Biblically, we talk about being born again hear those phrases a lot. What does that mean, and how do we grow up as Christians? So being born again, again, this is my southern roots, is accepting Jesus Christ into your life. It's often an emotional time, and we're committed to following Jesus, but how do we grow up from there? So let me take a stab at this and drink some coffee. Now, if we were to talk about Christians using Piaget's developmental stage theory, what would the sensory motor Christian be like? You guys still with me? All right. Remember, I earlier said that sensory motor babies are pre-language all about reflexes, about how things feel and touch. So I would say a, a Christian newborn, and by newborn I don't mean a tiny baby, but a baby Christian, right, someone who just accepted Jesus Christ, they might come to church and feel good about the message and then go home and live their regular lives, not even thinking about God during the week, right? So a newborn Christian might be wrapped up in the emotions of the service but carry very little over into their regular life. You know, and I was a newborn Christian for years and years. I believed Jesus and still do today, but I did very little beyond attending a service. You know, Christianity didn't just transform my life initially. Hopefully, everybody here is not stuck there, right? There's more to being a Christian than just, I feel good on Sunday morning. That's the sensory motor Christian, I'm going to say. Now, how about a pre-operational Christian? That's the second stage. Remember, that's the four-year-old that would throw a rock and be surprised when the window break. How many of you know about four-year-olds? Again, the four-year-olds are going to send me hate mail. I can feel it already. Um, you know, it's all about ego. It's about the self, right? I mean, we, we want our four-year-olds in school, to, in kindergarten or in preschool, to get the label of plays well with others, right? Because we know they're not just little ego babies. 
Because when they're born, they're all ego babies, right? I mean, that's the way we develop. I have to think about others. So as a, as a pre-operational Christian, we think about what's in it for me. And it's based on things that will happen in my limited experience. So a pre-operational Christian, would you pray that you would let your football team win? Or that you'd win the lottery? You know, I've been this, through this stage too. I wanted God to be the almighty fixer. You know, fix this problem. Help me out here. But it was still mostly about me. That's the pre-operational Christian. What if you moved on to the third stage? What if you were a concrete operational Christian? You know, you'd have some logic and reason. You'd think God isn't Santa Claus handing out gifts to those who ask. And I'm not saying prayer doesn't work or isn't powerful or God doesn't listen to prayer. I'm going to get to that, so don't throw stuff at me yet. As a concrete operational Christian, you'd see things from other people's perspectives, and maybe a lot of us are stuck here. We know God is more than Santa Claus, but maybe we don't know what to do from there. You know, we have a great example of how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, which we studied last year, but we really want to develop further. So the final stage of Piaget's theory applied to Christianity is the formal operational Christian. As a formal operational Christian, you'd be able to reason and understand that God has a plan for you, even if you didn't know what it is. And to be honest, that's my Presbyterian predestination route showing. I believe there's a plan already laid out for me, and I'm just trying to live it the best I can. You know that by grace, God has redeemed you, and to truly experience the wonders he has for you, you'd have to start thinking like God thinks. You know, you'd be able to do and act in ways that flowed from God's plan for the world, God's plan for all humanity. You know, it would cease to be about you so much and would become about doing God's work. And how do we do that? So that's what Romans 12, I'm getting back to the scripture now, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says to me, we are asked as Christians, and remember Paul was writing this to Christians in Rome, basically explaining what it meant to be a Christian. We're asked as Christians to renew our minds. We are asked to think differently about our actions, to discern, quoting here, to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And in so doing, our bodies become living sacrifices. Our bodies carry out the work of God's plan. Got it? So let's hear it again. I'm going to read the whole verse for you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So let's think about Piaget's stages of development. I'll oversimplify and say in stage one, it's physical, sensory motor. Stage four, it's mental abstract. How do you think about things? Think about that development. You're going from physical, sensory motor, taking stuff in, to how you think controls what you do. Stay with me on this leap here, right? It's from, it's all about me and things are happening around me to I'm thinking of stuff and doing stuff. You know, that's really it. How you think controls what you do. If you've made it through those four stages of Piaget, and I'm sure you are if you're 20 or older, let's say, um, then you're doing things based on what you think. Right? You got up this morning, you said, I'm going to go to church. So you thought about that, and then you did that. You know, that's fairly biblical, because in Proverbs 23, 7, it says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. In other words, you see somebody doing something, I'll tell you what, they were thinking about it. All right? As you think, controls what you do. And, you know, that's what I like about 
the, the WWJD stuff. Remember the WWJD? Remember that? What would Jesus do? That's why it's so powerful because, you know, I wish I had one of those braces to put on because you can, can you imagine how your life and the lives around you would change if you thought about your actions before doing them and that thought process was WWJD? I mean, I just said you think about your actions before you do them. What if you thought of in the, in the context of how is God thinking about this situation? All right? How is God thinking about this situation? That's how I should think about it, and that's how I should act. What would Jesus do? You know, I can describe a few times where outcomes would have been so much better for me if I had started with what would Jesus do? Let me give you an example. Okay, I, I hate, and I'm using the word hate here to quote Jack Nicholson from a movie I like. I'm using the word hate. I hate. I hate people who drive recklessly and cut me off. Do you guys hate that? Nobody hates that? Everybody sleep? Everybody hates that? Don't you hate really bad drivers? I hate really bad drivers. So one day I was driving down Pima on the way to the office. My lovely wife was in the passenger seat. We were going down to work together. And I was getting a bit steamed at this driver. This person was not consistent with traffic. I hate that. You hate people that are inconsistent with traffic. They're either way too fast or too slow or they're changing lanes. And, you know, I just decided I was going to get ahead of this person. Now, I didn't do anything illegal or unsafe, and there's no accident at the end of the story, so you guys can take a deep breath. Nothing bad happened. But my wife pointed out to me that the driver of that car appeared very stressed and likely had suffered from or was suffering from severe hair loss. You know, maybe she was on the way to chemo. Who knows? But for me to think this person was a terrible driver, a bad person, just wasn't Christ-like. You don't know what that, quote, bad driver is going through. What would Jesus do? Would he cut them off, tailgate, flip them off, race them down the street? Doubtful. Am I a perfect driver? Hardly. Can I still get angry with bad drivers? Absolutely. But I can be more Christ-like if I think like Jesus, if I think, what would Jesus do if I transform my mind? So are you stuck in the century motor stage of Christianity? If you are, then you can't possibly answer, what would Jesus do? Thinking like Jesus, thinking like God, requires us to renew our minds. Do not be conformed to this world. You do realize that it's not about emotions, right? Without a show of hands, don't do this, don't raise your hands. How many of you consider your life successful, I'm not finished, and got there by doing what felt good? Don't show your hands. You know, letting your emotions drive your actions is backwards. Letting your anger alter how, letting my anger alter how I drive is backwards. Fueling your actions off of your emotions is backwards. Emotions are those things that you get as a result of what you are doing. And you do stuff as a result of what you are thinking. That's why this passage is so important. Romans 12, 1 and 2. You know, if I, I'm off script again. You know, I, I did a, 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 I can't remember, the Search the Scriptures, I think was the name of this little Bible thing. We, we memorize verses, and this is one of those verses that, if you've ever gone through one of those courses where they say, next year we're going to memorize this verse and talk about it. This is one of those that always pops up in like the first five or ten because it's so important to renew your, how you think because how you think is controls what you do. All right? So that's the total train there. You think stuff, you do stuff, and then you get an emotional benefit or response. You want to feel good? Then do loving things towards people. You want to feel good about your relationship? 
do loving things for your wife. Then you'll feel good about your relationship. You know, it's only difficult when you do it backwards. It's, if you have to feel good about something before doing it, then guess what? You'll spend most of your time doing nothing, waiting to have your emotions triggered. It's like watching television. Why do you think television is so popular? You do nothing, but your emotions get stimulated. But it's a false sense of stimulation. Let me ask you, would you feel better at the end of watching a documentary on saving people from floodwaters in Louisiana, or would you feel better at the end of actually saving people from floodwaters in Louisiana? I'm guessing you'd feel better by doing it than just watching a show on it. I'm not saying everybody needs to get up down and go to Louisiana. You get the point, right? Do stuff to generate your true emotions. Doing it backwards, letting your emotions fuel your actions is the trap the world wants us to believe. That's why in that passage it says, transform your mind, do not conform to this world. As a Christian, we strive to do what's right according to God's plan. So how do we know God's plan? We know God's plan by thinking like God, renewing our minds, not conforming to this world, but being transformed. So quickly, how do you grow up as a Christian? And let's get a little application here. How do you get from sensory motor Christian I feel great after service, all the way to, hopefully you feel great after service, all the way to the past, past the terrible twos into mature, mature Christian life, the formal operational life, where you think about others, understand their struggles, struggles, and show compassion like Jesus would. So I'm going to give you three simple things. You know, I'm not a trained preacher, but I know that every sermon I've ever been to, they give you three things. So I'm going to give you three things. Got it? First, number one, study. Read the Bible with us this year. Or read it with somebody. Or read it by yourself. It's the authoritative word of God. You know, Jesus told countless parables. He was always teaching, was referred to as teacher. Let him teach you. You have questions? Ask Steve. (laughs) Or go online and find one of thousands of solid teachers of the Bible. Start your own Bible study group just by asking your friends at brunch. You can do it right after the service today. What they're reading Tell them what you're reading and talking about it. Study the Word of God. You know, some of you, I'm going to, again, go off script here. Some of you may not realize how fortunate we are, but Steve is an incredible student of the Bible. And, you know, every year he reads the Bible or listens to it on his iPod or phone or whatever. Goes through it every year. So he's gone through it every year for hundreds of years. Steve's an old man. And and he's gone to seminary and he's studied all this stuff. If you want to know what the Bible is saying to you, Steve will help you figure that out. He's not going to say, well, this, it says this, so go do that. He's going to help you talk through it. So I'm going to encourage you, engage in Steve. And I'm going to, again, I'm a, and I haven't done this yet. I'm going to do it in a minute, but I haven't taken a picture for Facebook. I always do pictures for the church. Um, you don't have to be old school. You know, I've, many times I've said you can either invite 200 friends to church every Sunday or you can just go to Facebook and say, hey, I'm going to church, why don't you go with me? And still reach those 200. So when you invite those people, you can go knock on all those doors. That would be the old Southern Baptist way. No offense, Sonny, my wife was a Southern Baptist. Go knock on the doors, you know, Wednesday night, visitation, Thursday night, whatever that was. Or you, you can be connected to everybody. Everybody's connected right now, right? My wife's probably sending me a text right now, say, wrapping it up, okay? Breakfast smells good. So be connected. So when you want to find out what does this scripture mean for me, or I have a question about this, Steve's got a phone. Steve's got email. Send him a text. Hey, Steve, I was reading this. What do you think? He will help you out. And, and I'm not shirking my duty. I'm just saying that I'm not educated like Steve is. There are probably others of you in here that have studied the Bible a whole lot more than me. But that doesn't keep me from applying it to my life. So I'm going to encourage you to do that. 
Study. Study the Bible. Second, what's number two? Number one was study. Everybody got it? Say it with me. One, one. Study. Okay. Number two is pray. Now I'm going to say don't pray like a toddler. Give me this. Give me that. Pray for people. So I'm going to tell you another quick story about me. I was working for this guy back in the 80s. Uh, and he was like like anti-Christian. He was all in those self-awareness workshop things, you know, where you went and you're locked in a room for a day, and you're like, got to be aware. Remember that? Some of you remember that. And I didn't really want to do that because I was all like hopped up Christian, you know, young. I want to be a great Jesus guy. And I chose not to do it, and I was starting to develop a lot of hatred towards this guy. I worked with him, and I really started to hate him a lot. And I went to one of those Jesus festivals. My wife encouraged me to go to Florida. We drove all the way, all night one night, and we camped in this fairgrounds, and we listened to these uh, speakers during the day and musicians at night. So and that was back in the day when the, when the musicians were like Wayne Watson and Amy Grant and all those people, right, up on a big stage, and there were like 800,000 people there, and, the, and it was hot and sweaty, and there were lots of bugs. But, you know, you get the idea, right? One of those big Jesus festivals. And I remember from that that this guy said um, that if you pray for somebody for five minutes a day, you cannot hate them. Did you guys know that? You can't hate them. You know, Matthew 5, says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, that doesn't mean you're supposed to feel good about those people. When he says love your enemies, it doesn't mean I need to feel good about the people that are trying to kill me or hate me or doing bad things to me or talking about me or whatever. It means you have to pray. You pray for that person. You know, after prayer all those years, all those years ago, I don't, I don't pray for him every day. I probably should. But after praying for that guy 30 years ago, I still don't hate that guy. I have a lot of disagreements with him, and I don't know if I'd recognize him or run into him. I don't keep up with him. This is not, you know, I don't have a stalker or whatever. But you get the idea. Prayer will change how you view someone. And it's not, it's not backwards. It's not the emotion of, I need to feel good about this person so I can go pray about them, pray for them, pray that God will work in their lives, pray that God will work through them. That's, not, that's backwards, remember? Emotions. You don't feel good and then pray. Just go pray. Right? Prayer will turn your heart around. Prayer will let you see uh, your adversary through God's eyes. You know, I should have prayed for that woman who I thought was a really bad driver. I have no idea what she was going through. But God knows, and my prayers would have helped. That's number two. Number one was study. Number two is, number three is, what would Jesus do? cliche. Do something to share his compassion to those around you. Do something. All right. I'm not saying you should post uplifting messages on Facebook and encourage your friends to come to church, although there's nothing wrong with that. What I'm saying is be a formal operational Christian, back to Puget, remember, and learn to think God's thoughts by renewing your mind. Let his will, God's will, permeate your being. You want some simple practicality to that? Stop being critical of people around you. Be compassionate. Be compassionate. You know, this week you're going to encounter someone who is struggling. Maybe it's a homeless guy on the corner. Maybe it's a coworker going through a tough time. Maybe it's someone in your family going through some crisis. You're going to encounter people. Everybody's struggling, right? I'm struggling. Everybody's struggling. You're going to encounter somebody who's struggling. Here's what you do. Take the Word of God and transform your mind and pray that God would help that person, that God would help you know how to help that person. And then show that person some compassion. How do you do that? You don't have to preach to them. I'm, I'm going to say don't preach to them. I'm going to say 
Spend some time with them. Say, I'm here if you need me. Or let's chat sometime. Or simply just ask if there's anything you can do. Let's be the reasonable sacrifice that God asks of us. Okay? Number one was study. Number two was, number three is, what would Jesus do? Do something, right? Study. Get your mind right. Think. Pray. Do something. Okay? We're going to have communion here in a second, so let's pray. Holy God, we just thank you for your good and perfect will for our lives. And we know that we want to make it about us. We, we start out wanting to make it about us, and we know it's not about us. It's about you. It's about the plan that you've laid out before us. And I just ask, Lord, that you would continue to reveal yourself to those who ask. And I would ask that you motivate everyone that can hear my voice right now and everyone else to just go to you and ask a question. Pray. Prayer is asking you questions, Lord, and getting answers and, and, and asking for your will to work in other people's lives, for you to show compassion to other people and teach us how to show compassion. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So in closing, uh, at Church of the Chip, we invite you to partake in communion. So there's, oh, there's some communion things that came up. Uh, and, and I'm just going to say a couple words about communion, and then we're going to do a little quick song. Uh, you know, communion is the cornerstone of our faith, is to believe that Jesus Christ died and rose from, our, from the dead for our sins. And we celebrate the opportunity Christ has given us for eternal salvation by remembering his death. We've got a cross right here behind us. A good reminder. You know, it's just the beginning for us. If you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to do so. Once you have, get to work learning how God's plan for your life brings fulfillment like none other.